Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kia ora koutou. Um, welcome to March's Clinical Snippets uh, with me, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones, I'm the Medical Director of Pinnacle and a GP, and um, my esteemed colleague, Dave Mapleston. Um, whereabouts are you practicing now, Dave? Uh, Hamilton East on a Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. And then there are a lot of time uh, working for Pinnacle, doing this sort of thing, and, and also the Health and Disability Commissioner. That's my, that's the majority of my work these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us these um, your shared wisdom and the, uh, your view of um, of what's current and that we should be highlighting for the general practice. I know that you come from a position of wanting to keep us and our patients safe, um, and it's uh, which is great. Thanks very much for the intro. Um, yeah, I think it's I, I, one reason why I do this is because there is just so much stuff that comes across our desks, um, and and the difficulty we sometimes have of sorting out what's relevant, what's not. Yeah even knowing what's about um and that's been highlighted i think quite recently in the um lamotrigine uh, coroner's inquest yeah uh, where are saying they sent out copious amounts of information to general practice and some of the gps that have testified saying they weren't aware of the brand change yeah yeah it just gets lost in the noise of um all of the other emails and the important things that we have to deal with but you it's um it's really helpful for to have your filter over over what's important um so thank you that's good so just uh, this this um march snippets is really a uh, combination of some sort of clinical management um updates or hints and um a couple of other bits and pieces but the first one I mean, I've, I've looked into this personally because I'm just finding it so confusing with the, yeah. with our diabetes, type 2 diabetes management at the moment, because really it has been totally changed from what we're used to. Uh, I mean, metformin is still is still up there as, as first line, but your um, sulfonyl ureas are now, I think, almost third line. Um, and what I've found is the NZSTD website, an extremely helpful algorithm on the website. Um so if I go to the website just to just to get, show you what it looks like, that's so a management algorithm for type two diabetes. Um, you can click on any of these boxes to get an update on or, or more information on diagnosis, lifestyle, etc. But I think most helpful is coming into just following through the actual algorithm um, and telling you when an SGLT two inhibitor or GLP one RA is indicated. And which one is preferable? Um, so essentially, you come down to um, the patient who fulfills the criteria, uh, and heart failure or renal, fa- or renal disease predominates, yes or no, and that will then dictate your choice of um, of agent. Uh, so I won't go through it in any great detail here because you really need to be concentrating. But you can follow the you can follow the algorithm right through. There's all sorts of information about the drugs how to monitor them, how to get a hold of them um, as you come through the algorithm and then how to monitor the patient. So I just found it extremely practical um, 
really helpful in that you won't necessarily look at it while your patient is in front of you, but you might say, look, there are some new drugs available. I'll investigate if your particular case, and then you can decide uh, what the appropriate management is. Yeah, I mean, it looks, it looks fantastic. I know that the Health Pathways teams are working on all of this, but it takes a little while for that. For the for this sort of thing to get translated into that health pathways tool, so this is is fantastic. Um, I think oh, the other thing is patients, you know, are quite aware these days of um, of what's out there, or some, and so you will get patients, I think, asking about these new drugs and and whether they're right for them. Yeah, yeah, and it's great if actually if that sort of thing is publicly available. Um, I think that's fantastic. You know, the, our patients are often the experts in their disease. And if they can um, sort of uh, direct us to those things themselves, I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, so long as they're not t directing us to things about turmeric and um, the acupressure. That's, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, do no harm, but not <laughs> good, I think. So, uh, no, that looks um, fantastic. Uh, just, just some highlights from, the, from these new drugs. The um, SLGT2I, um, drugs, which are both available in combination with metformin, um, there is a risk of, of normoglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis with these drugs, and they need to be stopped with any intercurrent illness or a couple of days before elective surgery. Um, so that's just that specific to that group. Um, the GLP1RA group are given by injection, uh, and the one that's going to be available on special authority uh, um, probably won't be available to mid-2021, which is this year, obviously, only, probably only a couple of months. Yeah. Um, and you can't, you can't prescribe uh, the two of them together, unfortunately, even though best practice would be for some patients, a special authority precludes you from prescribing both concurrently, uh, but the patient has the option of paying for one or the other if they're going to get better results with the two of them together. Yeah. So Do you think that is just a cost issue or is there a, some complication that might makes it more difficult to use together? No, as far as I can see, uh, when I look at international recommendations, it's purely a cost issue. Um, so just another example, I guess, of, um, yeah, of the restrictions we face that we've got to deal with, really. Um, but they can be used together if indicated, but yeah, if, if the patient will have to fund one or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, interesting thing I came across here is liraglutide, which has an indication for, in New Zealand for treating obesity. And looking at some of the trials, it's, it's hugely effective uh, at promoting weight loss. And, and this is not necessarily in diabetic patients, just for patients who are obese. Um, so again, quite expensive, not available, not funded. Uh, and the patient's got to inject themselves. But if you've got people that are really keen to lose weight and, and tried everything else, then uh, liraglutide might be something you uh, could look at. It's not just for me, so I can fit into my wedding dress then. <laughs> I think it has some, I can't remember what the, what the criteria are in the MedSafe um, data sheet, but it's, I think it's BMI over 30, something like that. So it's not, not extreme. Um, so that's, yeah, but basically there's a lot of detail in here, uh, too much to sort of go through in a, in a short session, but I'd thoroughly recommend the NZSSD website and that algorithm for, um, for helping to you know, help and guide you with uh, appropriate management. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's fantastic. And it, yeah, absolutely a very confusing um, space at the moment for um, 
for me as well. So that's, I'll, I'll definitely use all of that. I'll um, update myself uh, as soon as I can. The good thing I can do is, because I'm seeing other people's patients, I can say, you might be a candidate for this, discuss it with your regular GP because I'll be following you up. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, number two is uh, increased access to chest X-rays. This is a Waikato DHB um, initiative. Oh, yeah. uh, so, so basically for the past three days, um, uh, DH, the DHB has opened up access to ordering of chest X-rays through community radiology providers. Um, via the e-referral process. So there's a uh, dedicated e-referral. When you make the e-referral for chest X-ray, a drop-down box will give you access to the list of private providers involved. Um, the criteria for using this is essentially that the GP feels the chest X-ray will help them with managing that patient. But the underlying goal of the, of the project is to try and assist with earlier diagnosis of lung cancer um, and particularly address the um, equity gap between Māori and non-Māori in lung cancer prognosis. So Māori, A, have a much higher incident of, incidence of lung cancer, particularly Māori women, uh, tend to get diagnosed later, generally have advanced disease at diagnosis. Uh, so anything that can um, help reduce that situation, I think, is worthwhile. Having said that, a majority of patients with lung cancer have advanced disease at time of diagnosis because of the, the way it tends to present. Yeah. Um, I think it's so, so. The important thing here, really, is is for generally. It's I know this is this is specific to the Waikato, but it's that um, those issues around the sensitivity and specificity of chest X-ray and the uh, the guidance around when to when to order one, and in terms of that early early diagnosis of lung cancer, which we we do fail. Yeah, uh, I've, to I've, do it. I've, yeah, I've certainly I've had I've had bad experiences myself with delayed yeah. diagnosis of lung cancer. I think we probably yeah, all have. Same here. Yeah. But I think of interest, um, I, there's a 2018 systematic review of the sensitivity of chest X-rays for lung cancer, um, which suggests that it doesn't identify lung cancer in approximately 25% of cases. Wow, so that's a that's a lot of a lot of cases. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think I think the thing that comes out of this is really you know treat the patient, not the chest X-ray results. So if you've got a normal chest X-ray result, but you're suspicious that the patient might have something going on because for, for other clinical reasons, all their symptoms don't go. Don't assume that you've excluded lung cancer with a negative chest X-ray. Yeah. Um, so looking at the criteria, um, the, the high suspicion of cancer criteria for lung cancer, um, the, the H scan criteria are actually pretty um, self-explanatory. So a chest X-ray is suspicious for lung cancer um, persistent or unexplained hemoptysis in high-risk individuals and mm -hmm. high-risk individuals over 40 are um, smokers or ex-smokers, asbestos uh, exposure history, COPD or interstitial lung disease, history of cancer with a view uh, that they have an increased risk of metastatic disease and family history of lung cancer. Uh, and even though I think 80 to 90% of lung cancers are related to smoking, um, that this is a changing picture, particularly in women and East Asians, that there's an increasing frequency of um, or incidence of lung cancer in non-smokers or never yeah. smokers. Um, there was that. Has it got anything to do with the um, stone? You know, artificial stone workers. There was a. Um, uh, yeah, they, yeah, they certainly have. Um, they have a, the, the, their risk is interstitial lung disease, which yeah. which then I think places them at increased risk of lung cancer rather than 
at placing them at immediate risk of lung cancer. Right. Um, but, yeah, the ACC have got a, um investigation pathway for stone workers now. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite a prescribed one. Yeah. Um, so essentially the, the um, Ministry of Health uh, recommendation is that an urgent chest X-ray is required uh, to, to exclude lung cancer or to exclude as much as you can. And people over 40... Uh, age 40 and over if they have any of these following criteria. So persistent or unexplained hemoptysis, unexplained or persistent, persistent meaning more than three weeks of these things that we see every day in general practice, cough, yeah. of breath, etc. Just pain. The, the, the critical thing here, I think, is unexplained. So I, I think if you have someone who's obviously got, had a viral respiratory infection and it drags on for five or six weeks and they are otherwise totally well, yeah, well, that's not necessarily an unexplained um, cause of cough. If it's following the normal pattern of the disease that you might expect, then you know you can you don't have to investigate everybody who's had a cough for three weeks because yeah. we, we know that post-viral um, infl inflammation follows for you know can give you a bit of a cough for four to six weeks, can't it? Exactly, yeah. and I think if you look at the um, or looking at up to date on on chronic cough. Obviously, the things change depending on the age of the patient you're looking at and there are other risk factors, but 90% of chronic cough in adults is either is due to either post-nasal drip, um, asthma, or um, reflux. Yeah. So um, so I think, you know, it's uh, there's still that, that art of diagnosis and considering everything that will push you in a particular direction. Um, but the bottom line, I think, is, you know, keep these things in mind and if you've got patients that fulfill these criteria and who you have any doubt about the underlying diagnosis we now have this easier access to um, community chest x-ray uh, and the other the other important point and this one i've seen disasters where a patient's had a chest x-ray at ed that's shown consolidation and uh, nothing's been pointed out to the to the gp in the discharge summary um, and the patient hasn't been told anything and, and they come and see the GP six months later with a chronic cough and oh. they've got lung cancer, which should have been determined at the six week um, post consolidation recheck x-ray. Uh, so again, just keep that in the back of your mind. And, and um, if someone's been diagnosed with a low risk infection in ED, think should this person be having a, uh, a follow-up chest x-ray in six weeks? I wish life wasn't so complicated, but yes, absolutely. You definitely need to keep keep our patients safe in that situation. And so, because we'll get copied into those results from the uh, ED department. And um, yeah, it's matching that with the what's been managed and, and, and explained to the patient in the, um, in the ED discharge summary uh, yeah. is, is, a, is really important, isn't it? And what, what is also quite variable, I've, I've found, is uh, how much detail in terms of follow-up um, radiologists put in their report. Yeah. So you won't always get that recommendation that this patient should have a repeat chest X-ray in six weeks. Right. Um, I don't think you can rely on direction from the radiologist. Yeah. Um, although, having said that, they do have standards of reporting which should be including... Uh, important follow-up advice but yeah. certainly as far as i can see you can't rely on that yeah just got to be vigilant yeah 
Never something completely different. Again, from the 1st of March, um, modified release nitrofurantan is available. Yes, I saw this. So it's, it's only very handy, I think, um, in terms of, of adherence to what was a QID regime and can now be a BD regime for yeah. essentially first-line treatment of, of UTI. Um, so the only, con or just the contraindications to nitrofurantan treatment include EGFR of less than 60, so a lot of our older ladies who you might be considering using it will have an EGFR of less than 60. So just keep that in mind. Um, and our pregnant women whom labour and delivery may be imminent should not be given nitrofurantan. So I think it used to be something like don't use it beyond 36 weeks gestation. But in fact, right. the, the actual data sheet, let's say data sheet New Zealand formulary, uh, say uh, basically only in those in whom labour or delivery may be imminent. I'm not yeah. quite sure how you tell that always, but... Um, and how long a course is it? Uh, five days, I think, still, is my recollection. Yeah. Um, so the, the other thing I just want to... I think we've talked about this once before, but again, it's really important, is that uh, nitrofurantone can have quite nasty pulmonary and hepatic adverse effects, especially with prolonged use. And just to... Be aware of that with those patients who are on low, long-term, low-dose um, nitrofurantone for UTI prophylaxis. Yes, that they should be having um, regular monitoring of lung and liver function and uh, periodic check for signs of peripheral neuropathy. Yeah. Um, number five is uh, probably a little related to the the lung. Um, cancer side of things and that again um, how can we improve our detection of um, of bowel cancer and this is a, a fraught area as I'll talk about but, but basically the Ministry of Health have updated their criteria or updated at the end of 2009 their criteria for direct access to outpatient colonoscopy um, or CT colonography um, and these have been incorporated into the um, local Midlands health pathway, health pathway for colorectal symptoms, yeah. and the and they're also available on the e referral. Um, so if I look back to here and go to here, so this it's actually with um, if you ever have a spare moment, just reading through the direct access, both to to remind yourself what the direct access are, but there's some quite important information in this as well around safeguarding your patients. Um, so it talks about um, what the criteria are. Uh, so uh, if you are referring a patient, um, make, you know, make sure you've got consent uh, and make sure they're willing to undergo the procedure. And this tells, this talks about when um, colonoscopy is appropriate and when colonography might be the more appropriate investigation. Essentially, most times it would be colonoscopy would be, would be the preferred option. Uh, and it's really important to ask someone with colorectal symptoms about their family history of colorectal cancer, because if they are a Category 2 or 3 patient in that regard, then um, they're much more likely to be able to access um, colonoscopy than, than if they don't have a significant family history. And what constitutes a family history is, I think it's outlined in this, but also in the separate Ministry of Health publication. Yeah, it's quite complicated, isn't it? It'd be great if there was some sort of easy decision support tool around making that assessment for family history and recording it in our records as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, I know we've I've looked at that, and it's it's just quite complicated to to actually build. 
yeah, and, and the patient needs to be really quite aware of, of who in their family have had colorectal cancer and how old they were. Yeah, because they're all important factors, and often I think patients haven't a clue about those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but what I what I find surprising in the cases I've looked at um, of delayed diagnosis of bowel cancer is how infrequently um, patients are asked about their family history, even at the time they're being referred for colonoscopy. So again, just it's, it is an important point. Um, also important here, I think, is how to manage patients who do not meet the referral criteria. So. I've yeah. done two cases this week of patients, male patients in their 40s who did not fulfill the criteria for direct access colonoscopy and both turned out to have advanced colorectal cancer when they eventually did get their colonoscopies performed via circuitous routes. Yeah. Um, and it just, again, it's, I, I think there's a gap here between international practice and local practice in terms of the age cutoffs for when colonoscopy should be used as an investigation for sole, sole symptom of rectal bleeding, say. Um, so both of these patients were diagnosed with hemorrhoids. Both had hemorrhoids, but they also had colorectal cancers. Yeah. Um, and, and it's easy to see, you know, how this delay comes about. Um, so the up to date recommends patients, uh, under 40, with uh, what they call, uh, but what we would call outlet type bleeding as the as their only symptom. Um, if they're under forty, they've got outlet type bleeding, and they've got obvious hemorrhoids. It's reasonable to to treat them, but you might consider referring them for um, for sigmoidoscopy. Right. If they're between forty and fifty, um, even if they've got hemorrhoids, they should be referred for sigmoidoscopy. This is in America. Yeah. Um, but this is this is in part consensus based with some evidence thrown in and they're saying essentially over 50 outlet type bleeding, no other symptoms still should be referred for colonoscopy. Um, and that's a weed striker, a bit of a brick wall. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess the message I'm, I'm giving is if you think a patient should have a colonoscopy, um, and they don't fulfill the criteria for direct access in public, A, make sure you've explored the private option uh, because you can't tell by looking at a patient whether they're likely to have medical insurance or not. Uh, and B, I think really consider the um, referral to the surgeons for an FSA or gastroenterologist, depending on, on what the symptoms are, rather than just saying, well, we'll, we'll keep treating your hemorrhoids every three months when you ring up for your repeat of ultraprop because they're still bleeding and we'll still call them hemorrhoids. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, that two to three month follow up. Um, if you're not, if you are going to try and continue to manage them in the community, then, you know, it's not something that you just say, oh, it's hemorrhoids, so don't, don't worry about. And, um, you know, and as you say, yes, some people do get intermittent bleeding from their hemorrhoids over long periods of time. But, you know, that's, that also is something that potentially we should be intervening for because it's distressing. Um, yeah. That, and I know that I know those guidelines are available on Dynamed as well, um, as in in up to date. Um, you know the the you know similar sort of program that uh, our GPs have got uh, free access to. But it, it, it's frustrating, I think. And I, I mean, I became really frustrated doing a case in which I was defending the actions of the GP um, because the patient had obvious hemorrhoids. This is a patient again in their forties, male, had obvious yeah. hemorrhoids. Um, 
and turned out six or seven months later to have a colorectal cancer. And an esteemed surgeon from down south um, said that my advice was, you know, that the, that the GP was at fault because anyone that bleeds out their ass needs a colonoscopy. Those were his exact oh, great. words. Did he did he write that down in his report? That's he wrote. He, I think he um, I think he wrote in an email to me. But oh wow, yeah. But essentially, you know, and I agree with him. Yes, but you know, we're dealing in a in a an area or in a country that doesn't um, have the capacity to offer that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but the referral criteria. Um, I didn't see any great huge changes from from what I thought were in the previous. Um, versions of this um but the, the two-week category essentially they've got um imaging uh finding suspicious for a, a tumor um unexplained rectal bleeding benign anal causes treated or excluded with iron deficiency anemia now again what does benign anal causes treated or excluded actually mean um does that mean yes you see some hemorrhoids uh and you treat them um, and then they come back six months later because they're bleeding again and you treat the hemorrhoids again. Um, you know, or does it mean, you know, they came to you because they had a significant amount of bleeding rectally yesterday. Yes, they've got hemorrhoids, but you can't actually see them bleeding at the moment. What does that mean? Does that, you know, is it reasonable to attribute the bleeding in that case to hemorrhoids? Yeah. I mean, I think the, it's the iron deficiency anemia suggests, I mean, I, I don't know that I've had, somebody get iron deficiency in anemia from bleeding hemorrhoids. Um, uh, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It can be quite copious at times. But um, but I, I think, it, again, I, I, I take issue with that sort of vague statement. Yes. That really doesn't yeah. give us much direction. No. But essentially, altered bowel habit, but looser and or more frequent. So an altered bowel habit towards someone's only starts only going once every three days. Um, uh which, you know, can be related to colorectal cancer or a change in caliber of the stools yes. can be related to colorectal cancer. That doesn't seem to be taken into consideration. Um, but, yeah, um, again, the six-week category, 50-year uh, cutoff uh, for older which bowel is, habits. Yeah, that is old, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's, you know, when you, when you see these 40-year-olds coming in. Um, but and, and if you're 40 to 50 years to qualify, you've got to have altered bowel habits looser and or more frequent, greater than six weeks, plus unexplained rectal bleeding with benign yeah. anal causes treated or excluded. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, they're all, they're all there, um, plus who is not accepted. Um, and I think, uh, again, you know, if people aren't accepted, you've still got that uh, surgical or gastroenterology, uh, gastroenterology FSA to um, pathway to, uh, to use. Uh, and this does uh, doesn't go into huge detail of the family history of colorectal cancer, but gives you links to the um, NZGG paper that tells you who who um, uh, is category two and who is category three. Yeah. So just worth even printing off and having available in the um, in the practice somewhere for for reference. I think. The um, I think the I suppose the other take home message for me is even though you don't meet the referral criteria for direct access. That doesn't mean to say that you don't have significant disease, absolutely. Um, and um, the um, that you um, and I think it's a fairly common um, assumption that we might that would that we make from you know it, it, with these barriers to to, to uh, direct access that um, 
because we can't get direct access, then that means it must be okay because those criteria are set. But actually, the criteria are set for you know uh, uh, the system more than they are for the for the disease itself. Um, yeah, uh, resource related. Like, yeah, yeah, it's about making it make, making the best use of the of the specialist's time because you know the the GP who who can give get direct access to the colonoscopy means their patient gets in quicker. Um, the um, it doesn't mean to say that um, just because you don't meet those criteria you shouldn't get access to care. Um, the, but it might just be through a different pathway. So the, the BPAC have got a, um, a good education refresher on the ministry guidance, and that, that again, um, reinforces the fact that there's a, definitely an equity gap yeah. um, in terms of, of investigation and outcomes. So Māori and Pacific are less likely to have a rectal examination if they present with colorectal symptoms, um, less likely to be referred, et cetera, et cetera. So just, I came up with a, a list of things that, that strike me as being important in the cases I've done where, um, where the diagnosis has been delayed. So some of the, some of the common factors I see, uh, inadequate assessment of a patient presenting with rectal bleeding, so no DRE or an assumption that it's hemorrhoids because it sounds like hemorrhoids. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, what right. do hemorrhoids sound like, Dave? I'm not, I'm not oh, good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Depends whether they're internal or external. But, <laughs> but, but the, the Americans call it minimal it minimal bright red bleeding, I think, or something like that, which, which we call outlet bleeding, outlet type yeah. bleeding. Okay. And 90% of them, of patients with that type of bleeding, will have local anal pathology. Uh, but the other 10% could have something nasty going on. So, um, yeah. so, so inadequate assessment, no structured follow-up. Um, with patients who haven't fulfilled the criteria for direct access to colonoscopy. So that's where that review in two or three months comes in. And I'd really, I'd really recommend that you track that appointment because if a patient's been told they have hemorrhoids and they find that very um, reassuring, they may well not turn up in three months' time because they're only getting a little bit of bleeding, you know, once or twice a week or whatever. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think it even though I don't see it that commonly. What I do see commonly is people not turning up when they've apparently been told to come back in three months for review. Um, but A, if it's not written down that they were told that, and B, if it's not tracked, yeah. it, it raises potential issues. I think, and then, I think the other thing there is, is tracking it and, and saying when they don't turn up, having some sort of measure of urgency around that, uh, because it may not necessarily be you that's following up that patient. It might be a, another staff member or a colleague um, and having some sort of flag to say, you know, actually with this, with this particular issue, it is really important that they come in for this. Um, yeah. uh, and ha so having some sort of way of, of tagging that in your uh, uh, recall, um, even if it's just, you know, please ensure or whatever. Um, you know, it's. Uh, um, I think that's that's really important. And the other important thing I think is is to be clear with the patient why why you're wanting them to come back in three months without alarming them. Yeah. Um, so there's a balance in art and a balance in doing that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that is absolutely right. And and we, you know, we used to be it used to be that the doctor knew everything, and you just sort of you did what the doctor told you, or patients didn't never did what the doctor told them actually, did they? But the you know that was the attitude that we took in the way that we communicate things. Whereas now, sharing the uncertainty of the of what's going on is is absolutely key in shared decision making. Um, yeah. 
So, and the more we do that, it's un, it can be uncomfortable because you 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 know disempowering yourself. Um, but it's really important that the patient understands what the what the potential things are, um, without without worrying them and you know, creating some sort of nocebo effect. Um, but you know, so that that's that is the balance of communication that we need to make. Um, so a couple of other brief ones. One was um, a couple of times I've seen patients with progressive symptoms that have been referred for an FSA, um, be given a P2, you know, to see in four to six months type um, appointment. They keep coming back to the GP with increasing symptoms. In one case, I think the patient ended up having bowel motions 20 plus times a day and was losing weight, but there was no effort made to expedite the referral or these new symptoms or acceleration of symptoms were not notified to the, um, to the department. It was just, look, you're on the waiting list. There's nothing I can do about it. And I think that the risk in that is that we we see that happening often, people being stuck on long waiting lists, so we regard that as as the new normal, but it doesn't have to, you know, it shouldn't be the new normal. If we yeah. if, I think if we feel this patient should be seen sooner and there's clinical grounds for that for that feeling, then um, we should be advocating to make sure that happens. Yeah. Um, private colonoscopy I've, I've talked about and Iron deficiency anemia treated as a, as a disease rather than a symptom. And again, in a variety of cases, not just colorectal cancer, I've, I've seen that where the, the patient is anemic. There's no written, nothing in the notes to suggest this was, a, you know, the cause of the anemia was explored in any detail and the patient's been given iron. Uh, and even when they haven't responded particularly well to the iron, it's just we'll give you more iron or we'll double the dose or we'll give you an infusion rather than what is going on, what is causing this um, this anemia. And there's plenty of good educational material out there on um, on investigation of iron deficiency anemia. So, again, just something else to put in the back of one's mind or maybe not too far back. Mm. Yeah, I think I've almost fallen down all of those traps at different times. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I, guess, I mean, iron deficiency anemia is, can be quite complex. Um, and it is, you know, it's quite easy to give someone some iron and make them feel better. And, and um, often that's all they do need ultimately, but it is something that really does need exploring mm. as, a, as a symptom rather than as a disease itself. And that's it for today. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, that is is really cool. So the the um, we will uh, upload this onto the onto the website and share the uh, the document that you've been uh, talking us through, which I know has got all those different links in there. Um, and um, thanks again, Dave. Any closing comments? Um, no, I think just uh, I I look on educating myself as a as a a joy rather than a chore because there's always something new to learn and um, I think really if we can keep our patients safer with by keeping as up to date as we can with um, with what what we've been taught 30 years ago but we you know do need a reminder sometimes um, as well as the new stuff that comes out um, it's advantageous to all really. brilliant note to finish on thanks a lot Dave Thank see you again okay see Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video 
version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite ano.